What's up, guys? This is Yeezy Bus, and I've got a brand new podcast about sneaker culture, Legit Check. I'm going to be highlighting some of the most talented people in fashion, music, and streetwear. This is the first and only podcast of its kind, and we're happy to be giving people what they've been waiting for. Don't miss these exclusive interviews. Listen to Legit Check on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, Brian. Hi, Katie. Well, it was great to be with you in Los Angeles last week. It was so fun for me to see Eliza, who's gotten so big and really seems to like cheese. <laughs> well, we keep feeding her, so she keeps <laughs> growing. And she she loved uh, she loved meeting Katie. She's heard a lot about you. She told me afterwards that you're not nearly as bad as I said. So I think you got a new fan. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot, Brian. I hadn't <laughs> seen her since she was an itty-bitty baby, and it's just amazing. She's how old now, Brian? She's almost two, and you should come to L.A. more often and uh, hang out, well, do she some was, more girls chat with Eliza. <laughs> she was adorable, and, of course, Brian has a wonderful wife, Claire, and I always love seeing Claire as well. So we also did something we don't normally do, and that is we had a photo shoot. We were ready for our close ups because we're taking some new pictures for the podcast. We want to freshen up the look and, of course, include your beautiful mug and more of the photos. So um, I don't know. I think you have a future in male modeling, Brian. Oh, yeah. And if you believe that, I've got a <laughs> Trump University degree to give you. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I handed the photographer a, a 20 for some airbrushing, so hopefully that works. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Anyway, it was a lot of fun, and it was fun to see you. And as I said, it was great fun to see Eliza and Claire. Meanwhile, I'm back in New York. I'm not traveling for an entire month. I'm not going to get on an airplane because my life has been insane with a lot of travel the beginning of the summer. So now I'm just keeping my feet firmly planted on the ground. And I'm here in our New York studio. Brian, you're still in L.A. And we just had a conversation, a really interesting one, with former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. He was a wonderful source of information and insight about everything that's going on with the Trump investigation. I think it's very easy in the day-to-day -day of the coverage to lose perspective um, and to really understand what's going on. And so I think he was terrific at stepping back and giving us in a sort of Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, style, and maybe I'm dating myself with that <laughs> reference, a, a, a sense of what matters here, what the stakes are, and really to help us understand the Trump investigation and how it's going. And really Trump investigations, because he talked about the different jurisdictions or auspices under which these investigations are taking. Is that that the right legal way to say it, Brian, with the Russian investigation being conducted, of course, by Robert Mueller and the investigation into Michael Cohen's activities being investigated by the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, which is Preet's old office. And folks, if you're unfamiliar, being a U.S. attorney is essentially the top federal prosecutor in a particular location. And the Southern District in New York is probably the most important office in the country because it covers Manhattan. So Wall Street is under its jurisdiction. Uh, a lot of New York political corruption cases are under its jurisdiction. And 
very relevant here. Uh, the home and business of the president of the United States are under its jurisdiction. By the way, everyone, this is a crossover show, and that means our conversation will be broadcast on Preet's terrific podcast, try to say that 10 times fast, called Stay Tuned with Preet. And it will be broadcast on our terrific podcast called Katie Couric, and we're trying to come up with a new name. So we'll take any suggestions, everyone. Just keep Brian's name out of it. Just kidding, <laughs> Brian. I'm totally kidding. But anyway, we're hoping that people who are listening to Preach Show may find ours worth downloading or subscribing to. And conversely, we're hoping that you all will check out Stay Tuned with Preet because he's absolutely terrific and has a lot of incredibly smart insights to share. And if you're a longtime listener of our show, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your mail carrier, tell your hairdresser. We're not proud. Just uh, tell everyone, please. Meanwhile, we had a great conversation, as Brian said, with Preet, who gave us really some much-needed perspective. And we began by talking to him about his short-lived friendship with Donald Trump and the events leading up to his vacating the premises. A lot of people outside New York know you as the U.S. attorney in Manhattan, who was fired by Donald Trump. And you've told the story a million times, I'm sure. But can you tell uh, our listeners, as well as some people who haven't heard the first episode of your show, what happened and why it got so much attention? Um, well, thanks again for having me. It's very exciting to be here on Stay Tuned with Katie and Brian. <laughs> I heard you're looking for a new name. We are. I got you know, some I very strange name, Twitter suggestions. I think. I think. I. You like stay tuned. My lawyers will not go after you if you if you name it stay tuned with Katie and Brian. Yeah. Oh wait, pre did you not get the memo? We're actually replacing you on your show. This oh. is very awkward, actually. I, I thought he had been told, Katie. You're like the wow. worst political junkie ever. If you're if you're starting off the interview with you're fired. Because, you know, that happened to me last year, which was, I think, the, the question exactly. that you had. Exactly. We've come full circle. See how I filibuster. Um, look, so so I was the U.S. attorney for a number of years. I was appointed by President Obama, confirmed by the Senate. And then as ordinarily happens, when a new president comes in, particularly one of the other party, all the U.S. attorneys, all the ambassadors, they all know that the new president and the new administration deserves its own people. And that's totally normal. happens every time. And I expected that to be true for me also in November when, when Donald Trump won. And, and in fact— I had no job security uh, that I could have expected, even if Hillary Clinton had won, because it's a new president. But about eight days after the election, the president-elect Trump called uh, the senator for whom I used to work, Chuck, uh, Chuck Schumer, and said, among other things, do you think Preet would stay in his job and stay on for another term and claim to be a big fan of mine and said I was doing a great job? I thought about it. I had expected to go <laughs> do other things. I'd been in public service for over 17 years at that point. So I thought about it. And it's the, the best job I've ever had that I will ever have. It's an independent job. We do, you know, the job apolitically. We don't think about someone being a Democrat or Republican. We just bring our cases independently, which is the reputation of the office. And so then I was asked to meet with the president-elect before the formal offer, I guess, would happen. So I went to Trump Tower on November 30th of 2016. I, Did I you see through. his desk with all the magazines piled up? There's a lot of Trump paraphernalia. Well, in every building. magazine cover that he's been on the cover of is on his desk, and they're probably six deep. Did was, was it still the case? I, I saw that, but I also saw in the hallway leading to his office. 
there's all sorts of Trump paraphernalia. There are pictures and photographs and, you know, knickknacks and all sorts of things. Um, but before I even got up there in the lobby, remember at the time during transition, there were all sorts of reporters right. hanging out, sort of penned in behind velvet rope, um, you know, seeing who was coming and going. And so, you know, people recognized me when I, when I went by. And some reporter, while I was waiting for the elevator to come, just yelled out, you know, Mr. Barrara, are you here to serve a subpoena? Yuck, yuck, yuck. I wasn't at that moment. <clears throat> um, so, I, you know, the elevator takes a long time. It's a gold-plated elevator. You go upstairs. The president was running, president-elect was running a little bit late. Uh, so I shot the breeze with Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon, who was wearing only one shirt at the time, uh, in his office, waited for the president-elect to come in. The president was very, um, you know, lovely. We talked about the office. Nothing inappropriate was said. He said, I was doing a great job. He said, I'm sure you're getting a lot of offers to go into private practice. I, I hope you would consider staying. And I said, I would. The only odd thing that happened in the meeting was he pushed, you know, a yellow pad of um, a post-its towards me and asked me for my phone number, my phone numbers. So it was odd that the president-elect of the United States of America was asking me for my digits. And presumably they already had them somewhere because that's how I came to be at the meeting in the first place. So I didn't really understand, although Jared and Steve didn't seem to think it was odd at all that, you know, the, the next leader of the free world was asking someone for his phone numbers. Didn't think anything of it. Um, I was asked to call Jeff Sessions, the incoming attorney general, from the elevator bank outside. Everyone said they were excited to work with me, and so you know, that was nice. Wait, so you did call Jeff Sessions? I did, from the elevator bank, outside the elevator bank on, the I think, the 26th floor at Trump Tower. Why He'd, so quickly? They wanted to make sure that, you know, they had checked the box. You know, he's going to be the attorney general. I'm going to be the U.S. attorney who putatively works for the attorney general. They just wanted to make sure that he was looped in and it wasn't just, the, you know, the president and his staff deciding on their own. Right. It was a sort of a consultation with a cabinet official who's the most relevant one for my purposes. So, And also the right thing to do, yeah, right? Good so, form. So he said, yeah, nothing if not good form. Uh, so Jeff Sessions, who I knew a little bit when I used to work for Senator Schumer, he was the ranking member on the subcommittee for which I worked, so I knew him a little bit. He said, looking forward to working with you. Then I went downstairs, and I had, I had asked uh, President-elect Trump if they were going to be making an announcement. And he said, well, was there press when you came in? I said, yes, there was. Well, did they recognize you? And I said, yes, they did. I didn't tell them the subpoena thing, so I thought he might yeah. have appreciate it. How funny would that be now? <laughs> it's a little funnier, more relevant now. But um, he said, why don't you go back out and just tell the press that I've asked you to stay. I think you're terrific, and I've asked you to stay. And so I did. And that was the last meeting I had with the president-elect. But then, um, as I've said publicly before, he would call me from time to time, which is an odd thing for a sitting president-elect to be calling, even though we had no prior relationship um, and it wasn't, you know, a matter of business with the Justice Department. He called me in December, then he called me again two days before the inauguration. And what did he call you about? Well, he, seemingly just to chat. And, about? And, and make nice. It was just small talk. And it seemed odd to me at the time. Now we know he does that from time to time. He cultivates people. We know from Jim Comey's testimony that from time to time the president would call him. Um, he never asked me to do anything inappropriate. He never asked me to do anything untoward. But it's a little odd for someone who has, you know, about to have the biggest job in the world to have time to call, you know, the local U.S. attorney in Manhattan who, I will note, has technical jurisdiction over, among other things— that person's businesses, that person's residence, that person's associates. Were you conducting any investigations at the time into anything Trump-related? I'm not going to answer that broad question, but I will say that at the time, 
publicly, there were calls from my office to look at all sorts of things, including the emoluments clause that people have heard things about. So fast forward to the time, uh, you know, so when I got those calls from the president-elect, I, uh, I let the head of transition know, and I made sure that people on my staff knew, and we decided it was okay to return the calls because he was not yet the president of the United States, and there was no, act, there was no actual attorney general at the time, and he didn't say anything that he was not supposed to say. But it was just, it was just a weird Well, I'm thing. just curious. When you say small talk, like, what does that mean? He said, like, hey, he said, he said, how are you doing? How, do you play golf? I mean, what was that? <laughs> so when he called me before um, the inauguration, a day or two before the inauguration, you know, the, probably the biggest day of his life in some ways. You're like, don't you have a speech to write? I asked him about the speech. I said, <laughs> I said sir, how's the speech coming? And he said, which you may find interesting, he said, it's going really well. I'm writing it all myself. And it's about uh-huh. and it's about hope. <laughs> Neither of which things I believe to be true. Carnage, any hope, any yeah. longer. Maybe maybe the uh, the wordsmiths got to him between like the Wednesday and the Friday. I think Steve Bannon got to him. He may he may have. Um, he asked me if I was doing all right. He told me some stories about. He told me how um, lots of people were coming to see him. He was very impressed that you know governors all around the country uh, had their hands out and wanted government handouts. So it was basically like he was trying to be your buddy. Am I right? Yeah, my view, my view is now, based on other things that happened, on calls he made to Jim Comey, and the way he conducts himself, and the way he sort of violates the protocols and norms of the Justice Department independent investigation, that in the way he conducted his business previously, that he doesn't see walls between law enforcement and politics, and that it's good for him to cultivate a relationship and be buddies with people. If at such time you want a favor, or and again, this is just speculation on my part, but it's quite educated speculation. If at some time you need someone to do you a favor or to lay off somebody uh, or to show loyalty, it's better to have had a friendly relationship with that person. We'll never know because a couple of months into the presidency, Donald Trump called me again. Now he's a sitting president. And now it seems highly inappropriate that it wasn't coming through the channel of the attorney general or the deputy attorney general. There was no warning about it. I didn't know what the call was about. Um, there are protocols that are very sort of serious uh, that the White House has put out and because of prior scandals that make it clear that nobody is supposed to talk to a law enforcement official at a certain level about an enforcement action. Now, I didn't know if he was going to be calling me about an enforcement action, but I, I thought it was odd. Uh, and I kept thinking about it, and I called my deputy in to discuss whether or not I should return the call. I know that seems bizarre to people. Your boss calls you, you call him back. But you know, the president really isn't your boss. If you are a local United States attorney, you serve the people, you serve your oath, you serve the constitution. In some measure, you serve the attorney general, but we in the, in the what we have called over time, the sovereign district of New York, sometimes don't even think we serve the attorney general. And I didn't know what the nature of the call was going to be. And one of the things we thought about was, well, how's this going to work if he says something inappropriate? and cross some line, which was possible. And now we know, you know, after the fact that he's done things like that, I believe. Who's going to believe my side of the story? We actually contemplated, and this is interesting. In Taping light of, it? We had a discussion about whether or not we should tape the president of the United States. We decided against that because we, unlike Michael Cohen, his own lawyer, thought it was kind of uncool to tape the president of the United States. Then we thought about having a witness to the call, but it just shows you that even early on, before a lot of the, the new information has come out, that there were lots and lots of people, including the president's own lawyer, who believed that when you have a conversation with Donald Trump, 
you want to have proof of what the conversation was because there might be a dispute about the content of it later. And the other thing I kept thinking about was something that Donald Trump said over and over and over again during the campaign. He kept casting aspersions on Loretta Lynch for having that now famous meeting at the tarmac with former President Bill Clinton, whose wife, Hillary Clinton, was under investigation. And that was just sort of a nice chit-chat, the participants claim, and I believe that to be true because I trust Loretta Lynch. I think she's an honorable person who wouldn't violate her oath. But Donald Trump himself got to say over and over and over again, what do you think they were talking about? I'm sure they were talking about the case. And I'm thinking to myself, even if the president of the United States sought to have an innocent conversation with me, which I don't know how he has time to have a conversation with me, given everything else going on in the world, who's going to believe that if later it looks like we chose not to investigate something or we were investigating something and chose not to bring a charge against an associate? It has all the makings of an accusation that we had some side deal. I went to Trump Tower. I kissed the ring. Uh, he, he asked me to stay. I agreed to stay. There was some deal of, of friendship or loyalty and no good could come of returning the call. So I called actually Jeff Sessions' chief of staff and said, I got this phone call and he agreed with me that I shouldn't return the call. Knowing that, you know, knowing what we know about the president's personality, he would be, what's the technical term? Pissed off. So I called the secretary at the White House back on March 9th of 2017 and said, I've consulted with the Justice Department for a variety of reasons. I don't think it's appropriate for me to have a conversation directly with the president. No offense. <laughs> um, and, and 20 hours later, I was asked for my resignation. Now, I cannot prove that those things are connected. And everyone else who was a holdover was also asked to resign. But it seems odd to me that those things would be so closely connected in time, unless they were at least a little bit related. So, Preet, you won't answer the question about whether there was any Trump-related investigation. But you're going to ask me something anyway, aren't you? Well, I'm going to ask you something a little bit connected to that, which is, is there any evidence of Trump similarly reaching out to any other U.S. attorney around the country? No, there's not. I mean, I, I presumably, uh, it, hypothetically, it could have happened. I mean, the other thing to, to be aware of, he then, the president, uh, my understanding is from the reporting, personally interviewed certain um, you know, appointments to U.S. attorney including the one in New York, the one in Washington, D.C., and I think one in Florida, all who incidentally out of the 93 offices have technical jurisdiction over the person and property of the president and his associates. So you think he would have learned from that interaction? And it seems like he didn't. Again, which is not to say that anyone did anything wrong or inappropriate, but there is, there is a, you know, definitely an MO on the part of this president to, to develop relationships with people whether they're in law enforcement or otherwise, when the norm has always been different. And and have you run into anybody since? Have you been able to ascertain if, in fact, those things might have been connected, that you I, weren't going to play ball? And I have So, so I've, I've, not, I've not made any accusation along those lines, but I've lived long enough to know you, we, you have to wait and see what the historical record is. And then, you know, when, when I was asked to resign, I didn't. And initially... I wasn't trying to be a prima donna. I just was confused because I was the only person from the prior administration who had had a personal meeting with the president, shook his hand, and was asked to stay. So, you know, given the level of incompetence that this administration has often shown, I think that's not even that's not even a partisan point. It's just a, a fact. When they, you know, rolled out the travel ban, they rolled out all sorts of other things. Maybe it didn't occur to them, well, some people stand in a different position. So I was just trying to get the answer how so, did they let you know that you you the, the acting to deputy move attorney on. general, uh, Dana Bente, called me at two thirty on on the afternoon of March tenth. It was a Friday, and asked 
me to submit my letter of resignation. I said to him, again, I wasn't trying to be difficult because um, I serve at the pleasure of the president. I said, are you sure it applies to me? Because, you know, I had that thing at the Trump Tower. Bannon was there. The he deputy president. Me to stay. Bannon yeah. was there. He asked me to stay. So this is, apply and obviously it didn't apply to everyone because two of the sitting U U.S. attorneys at the time, one was Rod Rosenstein. Obviously he wasn't being asked to resign. They didn't want him to go. And the other was Dana Benta himself. Uh, so it was unclear to me if they meant for me to be uh, asked to let go, to be let go or not. And then again, because I've lived a long time, I thought it just needed to be clear that this was the wish of the president. And if it was, and it took 24 hours to learn that, you know, I walked out uh, into, into the open air as a free civilian man. But I didn't want it to be, you know, suggested if, if in fact there was some nefarious thing going on. I'm not saying there was, but if in fact there was something nefarious going on, and people are trying to avoid an investigation of some sort, that it should just be clear that this was the wish of the president and not some functionary uh, who was in an acting capacity at the Justice Department. Why is that? Why was that important? Because you, so later on, if you have to find out why people did what they did, people don't have plausible deniability. If I, if I had never had the meeting, I, again, as I said at the outset, and people conflate these things, I had no expectation of staying. There's actually not even a tradition of the next president keeping someone from before. Now, sometimes it happens. Rod Rosenstein served under George W. Bush and then was, was kept on by Barack Obama and kept on again by Donald Trump. So there are exceptions to that. Patrick Fitzgerald was appointed by one president and kept on by the following president. So it's a small minority of people. I didn't expect to be in that position. But once someone asks you to stay in with a lot of fanfare, you know, I was asked to stay on for another term before he appointed a, a secretary in a of defense. In a pretty public in way. In a very public way. And then when you see other things that happen and you see and you begin to see the ways in which the president thinks about law enforcement and thinks about personal loyalty and thinks about how you interfere with things, you know, issues pardons without going through the process, asks Jeff Sessions, as we found out later, and I believe this, you know, can, you, can the department do something to back off on Joe Arpaio, asked Jim Comey, and I believe this also, can you back off on Michael Flynn? These are the kinds of conversations that the president thinks are appropriate that, that puts into a, a different light the nature of the calls he was making to me. And as somebody who's been in the legal system for so long, why is that such a dangerous MO, Preet? Because, <clears throat> because the law is the law, and it's supposed to be independently uh, enforced. And no one gets special privileges. The law applies equally to everybody, even though we have seen examples of this. These are, I think, transgressions of norms and very important norms. In this country, unlike a banana republic, elected leaders don't get to decide because they have enemies or they have friends um, who gets prosecuted and who doesn't based on their level of friendship with you or based on their level of adversariness towards you. That's how it's supposed to be. And, and scale, look, scandals have been avoided because they have these protocols in place. The, the reason you have these guidelines that make clear that a political official in the White House is not supposed to call a you know, a lower-level Department of Justice official to say, hey, what's going on with that investigation of my former business colleague? Or, hey, can you take a look at investigating, uh, you know, this political adversary I had? That's not, a, that's not a kind of country I think that we're supposed to live in. I'm just curious, and Brian's going to have a million questions, but Brian, just because there's an opening here, does it concern you, does the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh concern you for that reason, that he seems to have a particular view about the power of the presidency. So I think there's reason to be concerned that Brett Kavanaugh has a view 
a little bit conveniently adopted after he had a different view as a policy matter. As people may know, Brett Kavanaugh, one of the first things he did as a, as a lawyer was work on the Starr investigation of a sitting president and appears to have had a quite different view of what you can subject a sitting president to. And later, uh, he, had a, he has had a slightly different view. He had an epiphany somehow. Yeah, look, I, it can well, be working in the White House, I mean, this was not a crazy story that, that experiencing the incoming that you see actually working inside the White House, which he did under the George W. Bush administration, he changed his mind. Right. And he acknowledged that it was a you know, different position. Look, I, I credit his, you know, statement that he changed his mind more than I credit what I've seen Rudy Giuliani do. I, mean, I saw Rudy Giuliani on the on TV recently saying that a president does not have to obey a subpoena for testimony when at the same time, I'm forgetting who it was on, on cable television, showing him a video of himself in 1998 saying the exact opposite. And rather than say, I had a change of heart or I changed my mind, he said, I never said those things. So Rudy Giuliani, uniquely in public life and American law, can have two opposite ideas in his head at the same time and claim them both to be correct. Well, the difference is one president's a Democrat and the other's a Republican. Right. And do you think that Brett Kavanaugh's nomination was more appealing because of his change of heart? I'm, I'm prepared to believe that. Like, I, what, what I think is clear, uh, no matter what you think about the president— is that he doesn't do a lot of homework. Um, I doubt, in fact, not, I, wouldn't, I would bet everything I have that he didn't read a number of opinions by Brett Kavanaugh. I'd be shocked if he read even one. I'd be shocked if he read the briefing materials that were put together. When we prepared senators for confirmation hearings and to figure out what our views would be on particular people who might be nominated, those briefing materials go to many, 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 many pages, sometimes hundreds of pages. So I'm prepared to believe that Donald Trump you know, took advice from, as everyone knows, um, the Federal Society and the Heritage Foundation to come up with his list of first 20 and I think then 25, I mean, remember Brett Kavanaugh was added later to that list, of people who the conservative community of a particular stripe thought were good and people on the conservative side of uh, politics would support. And then in getting briefed orally, casually, you know, some of the bullet points that must have been suggested to the president would have included this idea that Brett Kavanaugh has been putting forward that the president can do you know, exercises his power in a very broad way. And I'm sure that was a little bit music to his ears. I don't know if that was the, the basis. I think other presidents who are not in the legal jeopardy that President Trump is in might have also appointed Brett Kavanaugh. I think if Jeb Bush had become the president, Brett Kavanaugh would have been at the absolute top of the list. But I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a little bit of icing on the cake. What well, is striking that in his first public statement as President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh said, no president has conducted a more thorough or comprehensive process to pick a nominee than President Trump has, which is kind of an extraordinary statement. I mean, how, it's not kind of, how does he it, know the answer to that? It's one of the most bizarre and demonstrably false statements ever made, which is saying a lot. From that, How do you know from it's false? Podium. How do you know it's demonstrably false? Because the historical record shows that multiple presidents, not, some presidents don't consult that much, that multiple, multiple presidents have consulted extensively with the other party. There, there are books on how Bill Clinton, and you might not like his nominees if you're a conservative, how he reached out across the aisle, talked to Orrin Hatch and other folks, um, who I think that during one of these periods was high-ranking or the chair of the, of the, or the, the leader of the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, to vet the possibility of people he would be nominating. On the other hand, the documentary evidence 
and the testimonial evidence, if you interview people, and what Donald Trump did was merely, as some people say, outsource the decision of who to put on the list to the Heritage Foundation um, and to the Federalist Society. There was, no one has come forward with any plausible suggestion of any sort by anyone that President Donald Trump consulted with any member of the other party. And other presidents have you know, kept this sort of internal as well. But to say that he consulted more widely than anyone else ever, I think is demonstrably untrue. It's time to take a quick break. When we're back with Pre Perar, we're going to dig into much more from whether Michael Cohen has flipped to what advice Preet would give to Donald Trump if he were his lawyer. This season, Crate and Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most... There's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining? We've got glasses for that. There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind. So find the ones that were made for each other. Crate and Barrel. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout and now back to our conversation with Preet Bharara how do you assess the extent to which President Trump is in legal jeopardy. If he were your client as a lawyer, how would you describe the overall magnitude of this problem to him? Those are those are different questions. How do you assess? I think it's difficult to assess. You just know what's in the public record. You know that Bob Mueller and his team are full of super professional, smart, heads down kinds of lawyers who will bring a case if there's a case to be brought, won't bring one if there's not one to be brought. Now, when you're talking about legal jeopardy, in the way normal people understand it, you know, whether or not someone is subject to being arrested, I think the president is not in any legal jeopardy, really, because I believe that, that Special Counsel Mueller will take the view that the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department has taken for a long time now. Not everyone agrees with it, but it's the prevailing view that a sitting pre- – no, it's not just Brett Kavanaugh's view – that a sitting president cannot be indicted. So in that regard, he doesn't have a lot of sort of imminent legal jeopardy in the way that some lawyers have to counsel their clients – to have a bag packed and a toothbrush, you know, in their overnight bag. And take care of their affairs. Take care of their affairs. You know, so, some, some lawyers tell their clients when they think they're about to be arrested to avoid, you know, being arrested in front of their family and children at 6 o'clock in the morning. They check into a hotel. 
uh, you know, under an alias, so that when the FBI finally comes, you know, the, the defendant, the target, can surrender on his own terms later to law enforcement. So I don't think the president is any is in any jeopardy like that. On the other hand, there are people who are around him who are, and I think we're going to see additional arrests, including my presumption is one of those people being his former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. So it's impossible to gauge, separate and apart from his inability to be indicted, how, were he not the president, how much evidence is there that he engaged in some kind of conspiracy if there was knowledge on his part in what people say colluding, but colluding is not really a crime, but conspiring with a foreign power to interfere with the election or violate campaign finance laws or engage in obstruction. So the jeopardy he's in is what Congress will do. Part of that depends on what the nature of Congress is. Part of, the, part of that depends on what happens with the Democrats in the fall. It also depends on what the priorities of the Democrats and others are. Not everyone is in favor of taking legal action against the president. Now, the, the second part of your question is what I would do or say if I were representing the president who had this level of legal jeopardy. I would keep my mouth shut. I would, I would be more, a lot more like Emmett Flood, who nobody knows, although he's representing the president of the United States as well. We just see the PR offensive that's not particularly helpful to the president by Rudy Giuliani on TV. And before that, we saw the same from John Dowd and from Jay Sekulow. Generally speaking, when your client, even if he's a high-profile person like a politician or a celebrity or a billionaire, you keep your mouth shut and you do your work behind the scenes. Like The, the principal thing that you want to do is explain in a, in a sober-minded, respectful, rigorous way to, to the prosecutors who potentially are going to charge your client is why they have it wrong and not blast them in public and not proclaim facts about your client's knowledge that turn out to be untrue a short time thereafter, not to make a proclamation about a potential witness against your client, in this case, Michael Cohen, one day saying he's an honest and honorable man, the next day saying he's a pathological liar and has lied his whole life. And part of the reason you don't do that is, you look. first of all, you look like a fool. Second of all, you don't serve your client well. And in particular, the reason you don't serve your client well is you don't have credibility. This discussion about whether or not the president is going to sit down with the special counsel and on what terms, those are human beings who are dealing with each other. You know, Rudy Giuliani or, or Emmett Flood or whoever else is sitting down, not with robots, they're sitting down with other people, and they're making representations about what the president you know, will agree to or not agree to, um, or they're making representations about what the law is and why the special counsel has it wrong, barking up the wrong tree. A lot of those arguments, as they are in life generally, are persuasive or not persuasive if the person making them has personal credibility. And when Rudy and others go out there and say idiotic things that are proven false and, and flip-flop, Day to day, when a person like that, and we've had people like that, or not as famous as Rudy Giuliani, when a person like that does that in public and then comes into my office when I was a U.S. attorney and tries to make an argument to me, I don't credit it. And that's a failure of lawyering on the part of, of those guys. But do you think they're doing that for the for public consumption? Sure. There are two different audiences they're appealing to. And do you think there is a method to their madness that that people are so confused at this point they can't make head nor tails of, you know, I guess. of anything, right? I'm always careful not to attribute too much cleverness and strategic thinking on the part of people who look like they're saying silly, self-contradictory things. It, it's possible, and that's obviously how folks are going to spin it. But I don't know anyone, even supporters of the president, who actually think that the, the constantly changing statements of Rudy Giuliani are helpful. In fact, I, I think I saw in the last couple of days a former lawyer to the president in, in other matters, I think his former divorce lawyer, who it seems remains 
loyal towards the president and affectionate about the president, said that Rudy Giuliani's representation is a, is a disaster. That said, maybe what Giuliani is doing is acclimating the public to the idea of collusion so that if and when Mueller proves it, you know, the reaction is, oh, of course, we knew there was collusion. Just like when Ken Starr proved that Bill Clinton had the affair with Monica Lewinsky. Right. It's he's kind of it's moving the goalpost, yeah. right? So people will be less shocked and more inured to this whole notion. It, look, it's possible. Anything is possible. I do think, though, that really smart people like you guys and other folks in the public who are commentators, because they're smart and rigorous, like to impose, you know, that kind of strategic thinking on the part of people who may just be incompetent. Can we ask you about Michael Cohen's case? Because your old office is investigating yeah, it. I have no personal knowledge of it. Everything relating to that case But what you've read and what yes. you've seen in the public. Yeah. Um, so clearly, he's flipped, right? I wouldn't say clearly. Um, well, could, could be, it, because remember, two things have to be necessary, right? First, the guy who is in trouble, in this case, Michael Cohen, has to make the decision that he wants to cooperate with the government. And... That seems fairly clear, as your question and your smile indicates to me. But a second thing also has to be true. The government has to want your cooperation. The government has to believe, the prosecutors have to believe, that this potential target, in this case Michael Cohen, has substantial assistance to offer. Now, everyone has been assuming, I think it's not a terrible assumption, <laughs> that Michael Cohen knows where, where a lot of the bodies are buried, can cooperate with respect to a lot of folks, perhaps even the President of the United States, and that he has stuff to give. But then there's another, sort of a third issue as well. Let's say the first two conditions are met. Guy's in trouble. Guy wants to cooperate with the government. And the government wants him. Government wants him. Government thinks that that person has information of criminality on the part of other folks. The government also has to believe that the witness is going to be truthful going forward. Also has to believe that the witness is going to be effective. I'm not saying this is true of Michael Cohen, but he's got a lot of baggage. You know, I, th I think Rudy Giuliani's second assessment of Michael Cohen is the more correct one that he's lied his whole life, and presumably on behalf of Donald Trump, that the first assessment of his being honorable and honest was not true. You know, prosecutors put on people who have told lies before and who have killed people and have committed fraud. We put them on the stand to prosecute other people. But you have to go through a real serious assessment of how that's going to look, of whether or not they've really turned the page, whether they're being fully honest with you. you know, there are people who, I'm not saying this is true of Michael Cohen, but just remember that there are these other things. His mere willingness to flip against somebody, including maybe his former client, is not necessarily sufficient. And it is true that some cases never get made because the witness is so flawed and so unable to come to terms with the whole truth that they're not usable. Do these tape conversations change any of that? It would be one thing if there were no tapes, right? If it was sort well, it of— what the tapes— I mean, Look, so the last—the one tape that's been released looks like it was suddenly and abruptly shut off. And, you know, you do have to worry about people who claim that things were said— but they selectively tape. Um, th th all these things I'm about to say are hypothetical. We don't know if Michael Cohen, for example, has three other tapes in which he looks terrible and he destroyed them. Let's say there's an email about that. Um, you know, let's say there are times when he was on tape you know, spinning a false story, so he would have something that looked like it was credible and tape recorded but was really not true. That would then cast into doubt things on other tapes where he was telling the truth. I, I just don't know the extent of this. And I will tell you also that you know, prosecutors all the time put on unsavory witnesses on the stand because that's the, the nature of it, right? If you're a bad guy and you committed crimes with the mob, you're going to have the information about other guys in the mob. But you know, there is a meter of unsavoriness that we look at. 
And the idea that a guy was recording his own client does not sit well with prosecutors who are, by definition, lawyers as well. And it, it may be okay, but you know, I think people are going to have to think long and hard about how they're going to use a person like that. And by the way, on top of all that, the other thing prosecutors don't like, this is a guy who has another lawyer, Lanny Davis, who's trying to one-up Rudy Giuliani. Prosecutors don't want people to come into their office who are going to be witnesses and then worry that the next day they're going to go right on television or their lawyer's going to go right on television and say, here's what the prosecutors are, are thinking about. Here's what I got asked. Here's what my guy's going to do. We hate that. It's terrible. It's awful. So there are all sorts of um, you know, thorny issues when you're dealing with what it seems like a somewhat not controllable witness like Michael Cohen, who also looks like he's lied a lot. Yeah. And I know you can't get inside their heads, but what do you think Rudy Giuliani and Lanny Davis are thinking when they say yes to do all these TV shows? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great it's a great question. Look, each of them has sort of the the, the, the you know the big mouthed lawyer who's going on television. Maybe it's a you know it's a split strategy, but each of them also has a very well respected, quiet behind the scenes lawyer. In Michael Cohen's case, it's Guy Petrillo, uh, who I worked for in private practice and who worked for me as the chief of my criminal division when I first became the U.S. attorney. He's as solid and competent and as ethical as they come, and so maybe it's just a decision that some high profile. Uh, you know, subjects and targets make is like, you know what? I have my legal strategy and I got my brainiac nerd lawyer, uh, Emmett Flood, Guy Petrillo to do that, who have great credibility with the special counsel and they do that negotiating. And then I have my blowhard guy. <laughs> and my blowhard guy goes out on television, mucks things up, looks strong and, you know, sates the president's need to have someone go on TV defend him. And I, and I guess that's totally possible. It's not the way I, it's not the way I would do it or you guys would do it. But maybe that's the way it's done these days. I have one more question about Michael Cohen, and we can take it out if it's super stupid. But um, he's being investigated for, I mean, is Michael Cohen being investigated for the collusion stuff or the Stormy Daniel stuff, or is there overlap? I don't think that's a stupid question at all. I think it's, I think it's a really smart question. And again, I don't know. But th the following things we know to be true. One is that Bob Mueller has an investigation that's focused on Russian interference meddling attack on our election. And then related to that, whether or not anyone on the Trump campaign uh, knowingly helped them, right? What people refer to informally as collusion. And third, whether or not there's been any obstruction. And that, so we know that to be true. The second thing we know to be true is that rather than retain whatever investigation, whatever bad things the Mueller folks found about Michael Cohen, they decided in, a, in, a, in combination with Rod Rosenstein, to, to separate that part out and give it to my old office, the Southern District of New York, which suggests that the things, and the lawyers have made this point, and it's a smart point, and better for the president, which makes it appear that uh, the things that are being looked at on the part of Michael Cohen by the Southern District of are New York— Are broader in scope. Are broader in scope, but separate from the president and have nothing to do with Russia. Now, the, the way—so that appears to be true on the surface, but the way the world works otherwise is— you know, he, 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 there are humans who have multiple things going on in their head. And so it may be true, and this happens all the time, that you take a look at one cooperating witness, and then they flip. They don't just flip as to the, you know, the taxi medallion issue, which is reportedly something that people are looking at, or, you know, a particularly, uh, you know, compartmentalized money laundering issue or some other fraud. You say to that person, what other bad things have you done? What other things do you know? And my presumption is, if they end up flipping Michael Cohen, and they find evidence of a crime that they're going to ask him to plead guilty to, 
with respect to his own business dealings, he will also be asked the question, well, tell us about Donald Trump, tell us about the Trump organization, tell us about these payments to these women and whether or not they were related to the election, and that was the subject of this phone call. And if he has information about that stuff or dealings with the Russians, then that information is almost certainly going to be shared with Bob Mueller. So it's not completely compartmentalized because the information in this human's head, in Michael Cohen's head, is not compartmentalized that way. So does Bob Mueller's uh, team have access to all the material that was, uh, what would you say, that was... That was seized? Seized from Michael Cohen's office? So my guess is, I don't know what arrangement they've worked out, because you have competing jurisdictions all the time. My guess is that in assigning this portion of the case to the Southern District, it was made clear that if appropriate and as necessary, we need access to information to do our own job, then you will share that with us, and you will keep us in the loop. In pushing that part of the case over to the Southern District, do you think Mueller is in any way preparing for the day that he's fired or at least creating a contingency plan if Rosenstein is impeached or fired? Um, If he gets pushed out or neutered in some way, is he trying to create a kind of a living will for his investigation? I haven't heard it put that way. That's a good way of putting it. I don't know if that's his primary consideration. Brian went to law school. (laughs) (laughs) Frustrated lawyer here. Me me too. Look at us doing podcasts now. Um, (laughs) Live in the dream, Preet. Live in the dream. You're not even in the studio. (laughs) Just managed to mailing it in from somewhere. Yeah. Look, I, I don't know that that's the primary motivation for why he's doing what he's doing. I, I think, I think uh, Mueller's primary motivation is to follow the facts and see what the truth is. Related to that is to make sure as much as possible and consistent with his oath um, that his investigation looks like it's coloring within the lines and staying within the lanes and doesn't look like it's getting too far afield so it has maximum legitimacy and credibility. And so if they found something that seemed, you know, a little bit out of left field with Michael Cohen, I, I think it's more likely they were just trying to show when, when later eyes are going to be looking at all this in hindsight that they didn't agglomerate to themselves every possible crazy thing that anyone associated with Trump has ever done and sent it to the Southern District. It's probably a nice, um, you know, benefit on the side for there to be multiple investigations going on in different places. So it's a sort of an incidental living will. You know, that, that case against the 12 uh, military intelligence officials in Russia, the GRU, that's no longer with Mueller principally either. That was transferred to the National Security Division. So it is true, what you're pointing out, I think is a smart observation, that things that have begun in the Mueller, you know, um, crucible, some of them are being parceled out to other places. It just makes it a lot harder to unring the bell. It's so gratifying to hear that there are so many interesting cases involving the president that can go on simultaneously. Well, when you make it a habit, when you make it a habit of surrounding yourself with shady people who you who you you know boastfully refer to as your fixer, um, and boastfully you know refer to as you know kings of dirty tricks, whether you're talking about Roger Stone or Paul Manafort or Michael Cohen, it's not shocking that there's evidence of criminality um, in all those cases. Do you know Bob Mueller? I do. And tell us about him and how you think he's handling himself in the case so far. So, so Bob Mueller, anybody who's ever worked with him, respects him, um, admires him. He's a guy before he became known to us here, served his country. He volunteered to go to Vietnam. You know, he, he, had a, he had a privileged upbringing. 
he went to Princeton. He was a lacrosse star. And when, when one of his lacrosse teammates after he graduated from Princeton died in Vietnam, unlike some people, you know who I'm referring to, he volunteered for service, um, was wounded in battle, and spent basically his whole life in public service. Every time he, he was, he's been offered something to do in public service, whether it's that's U.S. attorney or chief of the criminal division or FBI director, he says yes. He does it. He doesn't need all these jobs anymore. And, but people forget, you know, now you can swift boat anybody, I guess. You can take somebody who served his country, um, who is a Republican, who's never been besmirched in any way like this before, about whom Newt Gingrich said at the time of his appointment, everyone can relax because Bob Mueller is a professional. You know, this is a guy who started serving as FBI director right before 9-11. And when the 10-year term expired, there were about 320 million people in the country. Rather than find someone who could then replace him, Barack Obama, who was of a different party than the president that appointed Bob Mueller in the first place, and the Congress got together and with a unanimous vote, rather than find some other person to replace Bob Mueller, they changed the law. 100 to 0, and extended his term for two years. So here's a person, no one's a god, and no one should be put on a pedestal unduly. But of anyone in the country who is in law enforcement, there's no one who had a better reputation than Bob Mueller. Now, how's he conducting myself, himself? I think he's doing what he's always done. And in my observations of him, both as the United States Attorney, I work with him as FBI Director, and then observing him separately, he doesn't talk to the press, he keeps his head down, he does his work, he's not afraid of anything, and he's not afraid of anyone. And he believes in public service. And here's a guy who was back in private practice, who's you know not young in years, who accepted this task knowing that no matter what he did or decided or didn't do, that a large portion of the population you know is going to cast aspersions on him. And I wrote a piece about him for Time Magazine some weeks ago. And, and the bottom line is, you know, here's a person that, that a lot of people like to pour their hopes and fears into. You know, he's either a savior for the progressive left. Uh, or he's a villain to the, to the Trump supporters. He's neither one of those things. He's, he's I think, just a by-the-book lawman who's trying to do the, the difficult job that he was given. I'm prepared to believe that he's going to have a, you know, a, a scathing report. I'm also prepared to believe that he will find something different. And my hope is that everyone accepts, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, accepts whatever his findings and proposals are. Uh, before we move on from the Trump administration or from the Trump investigation— uh, I wanted to ask you one other question, which is, you said earlier that uh, collusion in and of itself is not necessarily a crime. Giuliani said something similar this morning on CNN. It's July 30th that we're recording this. And then he had to call into Fox later today to clarify that statement. And he said, the president didn't do it, but even if he did, it wouldn't be a crime. Can you explain that concept of collusion not being a crime? And if collusion isn't a crime, what are we all doing here? Yeah, so, so I don't know where the word collusion came from initially. I think, look, there are words in the English language. Is it a legal term, Preet? It's, so it's not. So, so that, that's the point I was about to make. That there are certain terms that have both specialized legal meaning and also colloquial meaning, right? Um, and collusion is not one that you see in the statute. You know, there are statutes that talk about conspiracy, that talk about um, aiding and abetting, that talk about acting in concert. But there's not one that, that says collusion. It's a word that's sort of easy for people to understand that has a— Oh, I think you think of colluding with the enemy. Yeah, and it, and it has a connotation of dastardliness about it. But it's, it's like just a shorthand. Like Boris and Natasha. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Appropriate example, Katie. Exactly. Who I think have been indicted under seal. <laughs> um, I'm prepared to predict that. Um, so it's, it's a shorthand way of talking about 
things that people talk about all the time. In the same way you say, you know, someone's a bad guy, that, that doesn't mean doesn't mean that people are either subjects, targets, or defendants. They're not bad guys and good guys. So it, it's a shorthand that, that people in the press use. The president has seized upon it to say that there is none of that, which is neither here nor there. And now, because it's a shorthand term that has come into popular use, um, it's convenient for people to say it's not even, there's no such thing, which is why people like me like to say it doesn't have any specialized legal meaning. Um, but things that might constitute, in ordinary parlance, collusion can also constitute a crime, right? So if like. there, for, for example, if it, if it is true that these Russian GRU operatives engaged in this hacking with the assistance of and the knowledge of and or the, maybe the direction of um, people in America who were on the Trump campaign, perhaps Roger Stone, who's, meant, who's alluded to in the indictment, not charged yet, then that is both collusion in the sort of layperson sense, and it's also potentially conspiracy. So, you know, again, I don't think we make too much of this idea that collusion is not in the statute, you know, but there, there are conspiracy statutes that don't have the word collusion in it. That doesn't mean that things that would ordinarily constitute collusion are not a crime. Does what? that make sense? Yes, yes, <laughs> okay. yes. So it's really semantics we're talking yes, about. Yes, correct. And, and a lot of people ask, what is taking Robert Mueller so long? It's not that long. It takes a long – look, what people don't understand is it takes a long time to investigate things, in particular white-collar matters. These things take a few years. And it also depends on the scope. I mean, you have, you have multiple indictments, multiple guilty pleas. You have multiple – charges against people in other countries, namely Russia, that required not only investigation and getting of information, but but the acquiring of classified information. You know, that, that last indictment against the GRU-12 is chock full of stuff that m- most surely very recently was classified. And there's a back and forth that has to happen with the intelligence community on sources and methods to see what you declassify for purposes of making an adequate indictment and also to maybe send a message to their you know, intel counterparts in Russia. When you investigate a financial crime, and presumably financial things are being investigated as well, sometimes evidence is in other countries. Sometimes evidence is at one bank, and you get a subpoena return from that one bank, and you see the flow of money into an account. This happened all the time you know, in cases that we investigated. And it takes a couple of months to get the subpoena return from the one bank account. And then you look and see, well, what money was coming into that bank account? Well, then you got to subpoena those banks. So it's painstakingly it's slow It's painstaking, work. and especially when people are trying to conceal their crimes, crimes of money laundering in particular, that's all about having shell companies and having you know, payments go from one entity to another. It takes a while to peel the, the onion. How bizarre was it when you heard that Putin was inviting investigators to work with— I thought it was bizarre and scary, although— more scary and bizarre is that the president seemed to say, "Hey, sounds sounds like a great idea, uh, like, like a great idea," a- along with like the the cyber force thing that they were going to do together. It was going to be impenetrable, though, Preet. How could you object to that? <laughs> Let's is listen to this voicemail from a listener who was nice enough to send in a question. My name is Marion Demert. I live in Spring, Texas. If the results of Robert Mueller's investigation shows that Trump illegally became president of the United States. What happens to all of the wrong he's done to us as a country and as a people? What happens to Hillary Clinton, who officially won the election? Thank you. So thanks. Should I answer it? Yeah. So thanks for the question, and I appreciate the sentiment. I don't believe that the presidency operates like um, the Miss America pageant. If there was fraud on the part of the president in becoming 
the president, uh, and that causes him to be removed from office, then Mike it, it still goes to Mike president. Pence. It goes to Mike goes to Mike Pence, and you know the the broader answer to your question is, then I think it will remain for a lot of good people in the country to come together, get past it, to try to remedy a lot of bad things that may have been done. But it doesn't go to Hillary, sorry. I recently interviewed James Comey. Uh, I know he's a friend and former colleague of yours. He would not give an inch. I was hoping we could break some news in Aspen about his actions during the 2016 campaign, including the letter he sent 11 days before the election. Do you think he has a fair argument? And despite your friendship, do you think he should just say, I screwed up? Look, you know, he, he's a smart guy, and I worked for him, and I worked alongside him when he was the deputy attorney general, and I worked in the Senate. We worked Friendship on, aside. Yeah, no. So he, he can say what he wants to say. Um, I would have done it differently. And if he believes that what he did was right, then he has a right to say that and a right to defend himself. What would you have done? I wouldn't have sent that letter. I, I thought the letter was a mistake, and I think a lot of I think most people think the letter was a mistake. Um, I understand. I mean, the best I can do when talking about other people's errors, who I think were operating in good faith. Like I don't think he was trying to sway the election. I don't think he was acting out of partisan interests. I don't think he had an axe to grind with anybody. He looked at you know a difficult decision tree, and as he keeps saying, you know, there was the the two doors and. I mean, I don't know that I, I fully buy that, but but what I do believe is that he was trying to make the best decision that he could make. I think it was the wrong decision. And I think you can judge people based on their decision-making, both on um, the wisdom of the decision, but also on the intent behind the decision. And sometimes people make a mistake of judgment, which I think this was, uh, and sometimes people can make a mistake both of judgment and of, and of good faith of doing something for a nefarious purpose. I think he was trying very hard uh, to save the reputation of the FBI or defend the reputation of the FBI, I think in the longer run, it's arguable that he did it more harm than good. And I think the problem with that letter uh, is that it was on the eve of the election, yes. And, you know, I remember I, I was in a little bit in a unique position to know uh, before the world did you know, what the consequence of, of the letter would be insofar as the laptop was in the custody of, you know, my folks the FBI agents we were working with, the, the Anthony Weiner laptop, because we were investigating Anthony Weiner for these other, you know, sex abuse-related crime, you know, sexual enticement crimes of a minor. And so we knew, among a small group of people, that nobody yet was aware what was on the laptop. So the sending of the letter indicated uh, legitimately and naturally to a lot of people, including political opponents of Hillary Clinton, that there, there must be something damaging because why would you otherwise? It's sort of a vicious circle. The fact that you issued the letter must indicate that there's something very damning on the laptop. And I don't think people appreciated when they saw the letter, and, and for their own political reason. I think a lot of people acted badly after they got the letter um, because it was in their political interest to make hay of it. But I think one should have anticipated that that was going to happen. And it might have been the better course to wait and see if the stuff on the laptop was redundant, irrelevant, um, you know, unnecessary, uh, you know, to affect the investigation, all of which turned out to be so. And why couldn't he have put as many agents as possible on that to comb through those emails and to do nothing until he had the information he needed to move ahead or not? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. He uh, did have the power to do that, right? 
you know, look, I, I think everything relating to how the information on the laptop was exploited, a lot of things relating to that, um, you know, were not wonderful. And look, there's a very long Inspector General report on the issue of what happened with that laptop and how much time it took uh, to ask for the information on the laptop. Um, right, right. I, I'm, I'm, my office is in the IG report to the extent that, you know, we were staying in our lane and focusing on the Anthony Weiner, you know, potential criminal case. And we're a little bit surprised that nobody was doing anything more quickly to exploit and look at the emails on the laptop. A lot of people have asked, Preet, would you run for office? Are you asking? Yeah. Or was that a statement? No, <laughs> I, I, it's a statement, and then it's a quizzical look. look. I um, So I thought about running for attorney general, and I, I announced on the podcast this week that I'm not. Uh, there's an open seat, and you know there, there are good people who are running for that position. Uh, look, I, I, think, I think public office is important. Um, I enjoyed having the appointed position that I had. I think there's a lot of good that can be done. You know, I think doing things from the outside, which I'm learning about, and I have this great task force with, with Governor uh, Christy Todd Whitman and the Brennan Center, which hopes to restore institutions of democracy and have other things planned. The question about serving an office requires first a, uh, a stomach for, an appetite for, and a, a thick enough skin for um, what it takes to get to office, which is campaigning, uh, which also requires, depending on the jurisdiction you're in, a lot of, I think, fundraising. And some people can do it and some people like it less. I tend to like it less. I think there are ways to do it, and I'll, I'll think about that for the future. Do you, so um, you haven't closed the door on the I possibility? The door. As I've, what I've said often um, is that it, politics is not my cup of tea. Uh, you know, being a judge is not my cup of tea. Um, what I like doing more than anything else was being uh, a line prosecutor and being the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, which I think is one of the purest forms of public service. Um, you could remain independent. You didn't know anything to anybody. You didn't have to ask anybody for a nickel. And you got to get up every morning and do the right thing. Uh, some of these other jobs are not like that. And certainly the path to these other jobs is not like that, which is not to, I mean, I, I have great faith and respect for people who throw their hat in the ring. And I've supported some of those people. There are people who work for me who are running for office and who worked alongside me who are running for office. And I've supported them and, and gone to fundraisers for them. Uh, at this moment, it just doesn't seem to be for me. I'm getting frantic uh, messages on my computer saying, Preet needs to leave. And uh, Preet, will you come back and talk to us anytime? anytime? It's really, it's a real pleasure. And I think you should reconsider your decision not to run for office. Because <laughs> okay. we need smart, engaged people like you. And, you know, I think it's now more than ever, we have to have people who have the courage to, to be the men and women in the arena, as Teddy Roosevelt would say. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> being on Stay Tuned with Katie and Brian. <laughs> Thank you, Brie. <laughs> Thanks, folks. Brian, now that we've made Preet late for his next appointment, you know, there was so much speculation about his running for office when he left uh, the U.S. Attorney's office. Are you surprised that he decided, meh, not for me? A little bit. I, the, the natural job for him would have been Attorney General of New York, and it's an open seat, and there are a number of people running. He would have had as good a shot as anyone. But ultimately, I take him at his word that he decided he didn't want to go through the rigors of running for office. And, and this Which is, is big... really kind of a sad thing, isn't it? Because so many people are being kept from public service because of how nasty politics have become. Well, you know, and this is going to be a weird thing for me to say, but blame the voters. 
Um, it's gotten really hard because, you know, if you can dig up dirt on your opponent, if you can catch, you know, a politician in an embarrassing moment, the voters respond to that. And therefore, the incentive is to to do it. And And politics has gotten really ugly. And a lot of good people aren't running for office as a result. The other the other factor is, of course, fundraising. Well, I think he obviously doesn't have a stomach for that either. Yeah, well, a lot of members of Congress spend more than half their time raising money, dialing for dollars, instead of studying the issues and meeting with constituents and all the rest. Which only shows how important campaign finance reform is, right? Uh, for sure. I agree with you. But I don't think there's any appetite right now to do serious campaign finance reform. And I hate to end the show on such a low <laughs> note, but uh, I think that's the truth. Well, that does it for us, everyone. A big thank you to our producer, Gianna Palmer, our assistant producer, Nora Ritchie, and our audio engineer in New York, Jared O'Connell. Uh, thanks also to Jordan Duffy for engineering my part of the conversation from L.A. today. A big thanks to my assistant, the incomparable Beth Demaz. You can only imagine what she has to put up with. And folks, join me and Brian and our whole team in wishing a big thank you and fond farewell to our social media maven, Allison Bresnick. She is on to new adventures in La La Land. So, Brian, you'll have to... Uh, Meet up with Allison as she starts her new life on the left coast, as they say. Yeah, we're going to be uh, going to a, a spray tanning salon tomorrow <laughs> together. So it's very exciting for us both. Maybe you guys can schedule a mutual waxing. Oh, wow. I hadn't even thought of that. Great idea, Katie. Anyway, <laughs> for better or worse, we are the show's executive producers. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought that was funny. <laughs> and a word of warning for the rest of August, we'll be on a summer break. You're going to miss this witty repartee, aren't you, everyone? <laughs> this means we won't be releasing new episodes, but we are going to revisit some of our favorite conversations. We might even throw in a surprise or two. So don't worry. You won't have to miss us too much. And as NBC used to say when they would do summer reruns, if you haven't seen it, it's new to you. <laughs> <laughs> Just slow so hopefully, so hopefully check out some of the podcasts that you might have missed. They're all oldies but goodies, everyone, kind of like me. Anyway, as always, thank you so much for listening, everyone, and enjoy the rest of your summer. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. How do our food stories change during wartime? John E. Bestricka, Private First Class. Our veterans share where they fought, who they fed, how they ate, and what they missed. The military had powdered eggs, and I hated those powdered eggs. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, and it's easy to see why. Join us in service, stories of hunger and war, on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started feeding them. That's the first thing we did.